The following sermon is brought to you by Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 1045 a.m. every Sunday morning and 6 o'clock p.m. for our evening service. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. Well, good evening. It's good to be with all of you tonight uh, on this beautiful Sunday evening. I mean, I'm telling you, I was talking to Grant earlier, and I believe this is like the second, if not third Sunday in a row with rain, if I'm not mistaken. So the Lord in his providence obviously has wanted us to see his reign um, and uh, to see how he is Lord over creation. Well, tonight we are excited to be able to close a portion of our series in what is Reformation Theology. And when I say portion, if you've been with us over the last couple of weeks, we have been walking through uh, the different solas of the Reformation. And uh, we have been journeying with them since September. And so tonight we are going to complete our last one, which is Sola Dea Gloria, to God alone be the glory, or to the glory of God alone. And there's been a progression, as you've seen, even if you've caught us online and been catching up in this series, you have seen a progression throughout our time over the last couple of weeks, walking through these important doctrines of the Reformed faith and the Christian faith. And of course, you know, we started off with uh, Sola uh, Fide, then we went into Sola Scriptura, Sola Christus, Sola Gratia, and now here we are with Sola Dea Gloria. And tonight, what I want us to do is I want us to look as we are coming to a close in this series, uh, this, brief, uh, this brief portion of the series, what I want us to do tonight is I want us to see why the Reformers wanted to end with to the glory of God alone or to God be the glory. Why do they end this? Why do they have to top this off? Because if you're a Christian and if you've been walking with Christ, whether you've been walking with them through a long period of time or through a short season, it's natural us to think, well, of course, Kenny, we're supposed to glorify God in everything we do. 1 Corinthians 10.31, easy. But you have to remember what we've been doing over the last couple of weeks is remember we've been going back in time, going to open up the history books and looking at what men like Martin Luther and Zwingli and John Calvin and the boys, what they were combating against and what they were facing up against during the 1500s and late 16th century. Because you have to remember the historical context, which was there was a lot of heresy and false teaching going on in and around the Catholic Church. And and so you saw guys try their, I mean, with the, by the Spirit of God, with just the fierceness and the strength of the Lord to be able to combat what was going on in the life of, in Europe and in the church back then. And so tonight, what I want us to look at, I want us to see the importance of why the Reformers wanted to end with to the glory of God alone or to God be the glory. Why do they end that? And it's very important for us to see, as so many theologians like to say, that Sola Dea Gloria is like ending with a cherry on top, or the roof, so to speak, that completes the five solas. And I think you're going to see that tonight. I really do. But I think also another element that we're going to see this evening is we're going to see how the Reformers and how the Bible itself, how the Catholic Church robbed the authority of Scripture. That's what we're going to see. I think you're also going to, I believe that, I pray that's what you're going to see this evening is how, how the authority of Scripture, how the infallibility of God's Word was also thrown out the window during this time during the Reformation. So tonight, the roadmap that I wanted you to look at is we are going to see, we're going to, again, open up the history books and we're going to see what the Catholic Church was teaching and propagating during the 1500s. We need to look at exactly what was taking place in the time of Luther and Calvin and those guys. I also also want us to look at specific examples of what was being taught and sold, and I'll get to why when I say that word later in the evening. I want us to look at what was even being sold and the heresies that were taking place, but also the spiritual bondage and the chains that was placed upon the people. 
So a lot of times we, we get into the history of the Reformation and we want to just, just, just center on, you know, the, the dangers of those heresies like we'll see, like indulgences and, and, and the act of penance and all that stuff. We'll get to that. But you've got to think about the spiritual nature of it as well. It, I, I really, it handcuffed people to a false view of worship. Instead of the God be the glory and to the glory of God alone and exalting the God of the Bible, his holiness and his, and his power and his sovereignty, what was taking place was taking people from a high view of God and taking them to a high view of man and man-centered theology. That's what was taking place. And I believe that's what we're going to see tonight as we journey through Solidea Gloria. But then that's what we're that's but and then we're also going to get back to what the reformers were reviving, which was who is the God of the Bible? Why do we worship the God of the Bible? And an important part of understanding Solidea Gloria is understanding why we are made right before God, the gospel. The reformers held up the power of the gospel and how through Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone. We have been made right, justified before the eyes of God all through the cross. And so that's what I want us to see this evening as we journey through this uh, Sola Dea Gloria, the last Sola through the Reformation. So before we get started, what I want us to do is I want us to pray and ask the Lord to bless our time tonight and to teach us um, as we're going through the history books, but most importantly, as we go to the text and to see what the Bible says about the gospel and see what the Bible says about the holiness of God and why he, he alone is worthy of worship. And he is alone to be glorified, not only in the church, but also in our individual walk with Christ. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask the Lord to, to teach us this evening. Father God, thank you for tonight. Thank you for this Lord's day. Father, thank you for Lord, bracketing the day with worship, morning and evening. Father, I ask that as we open up your word and we, and we not only go back into the history books and to see what transpired and, and, of course, Lord, you knew about, Father, I pray that you would teach us. But, Lord, help us to center on truth because you are truth. So, Father, help us to see and, and stir within us, Lord, uh, a deep understanding and a bigger understanding of the God of the Bible, that our view of God will grow bigger and bigger. Father, we love you, and it's in Christ we pray. Amen. Tonight, I want to start off just a little bit in a different fashion. Since we are, this is a little bit of preaching and teaching together, I want to start off with a game. And what, this is an individual game, so we're not going to get up and choose teams because we all know if we were to choose team, I'm the winning team. And so that would, even in the evening, no laughs. And so it's good to, it's good to be in the house of the Lord. And so anyway, but I want to play a game. And I, what I'm going to do is it's going to be an individual game. And I just want you to answer these questions by yourself. And these are true, false questions. I'm going to see how you do, okay? I'm going to read some statements. And I want you to see if this is a true sense of biblical worship or a false sense of biblical worship, okay? First one, 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So you're familiar with that text. Here's the statement. God forgives us of our sins as we confess them before him. He forgives us out of his grace, not on anything that we have done, nothing of our own merit. And the reason why we can confess is because our faith in Christ and our faith in Jesus it's what makes us right before God himself. True or false? True. True. Let me read the second one. In order to be forgiven of sin, an indulgence must take place. An indulgence is a remission before God from the temporal punishment due to sins whose guilt has already been forgiven, which the faithful Christian who has duly dispossessed gains under certain defined conditions through the church's help, when the priest or the minister of redemption dispenses and applies with authority the treasury of the satisfactions won by Christ and the saints. True or false? Fa True. I'm just kidding. False. False. We do not need an indulgence to confess our sins. Play one more. Actually, two more. The aim pursued by ecclesiastical authority in granting indulgences 
is not only do they help the faithful Christian expiate the punishment due to sin, but also it helps them and urges them to perform works of piety, penitence, and charity. And it helps them particularly to lead them in growth and faith and helps with the common good. True or false? False indeed. So, how did you do? The questions I listed above in that game, specifically the two false ones, the latter two, are questions of both the current and the past teachings within the Catholic Church. Everything I read, Martin Luther and the men of the Reformation would have understood and as well as heard within their own ears. Let me play one more game for you. Again, true or false? This is a tricky one. I went deep into the Catholic catechism to find this one for you tonight. I really did, so, because who doesn't want to read the Catholic catechism? The celebration of Sunday, the Lord's Day, observes the moral commandment inscribed by nature and the human heart to render to God an outward sign, visible, public, and regular worship as a sign of his universal benefits to all. Sunday worship fulfills the moral commandment of the Old Covenant, taking up its rhythm and the spirit and the weekly celebration of the Creator and the Redeemer of his people. True or false? That's a tricky one, isn't it? False. We do not, there is no, we don't have to fulfill a moral commandment. We are not trying to fill the old covenant anymore all because of Christ. We don't have to do that anymore. There's no obligation for you to come even here at Capitol to somehow, some way, fulfill an Old Testament law in order to gain you right, to gain you a right uh, view and before the eyes of God. We don't need that. And so the reason why I ask you these true and false questions and the reason why I'm, I'm, I'm making you play this game with me, because if you think about the confession of sin and even if you think about the Lord's Supper and other elements within Sunday morning worship, all of these things help you to be able to point back to the Lord, bring you back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are not bound as Protestants or evangelicals to be able to come to church to be able to be made right before God, like the attendance itself is going to make us right before God. We don't need a priest absolving our sin or, or saying that we are say, or excuse me, that we are forgiven through a worship service. We don't need that. And these two examples, these questions that I'm giving you, help you understand what was going on in the time of the Reformation within the Catholic Church. The Mass or the Eucharist, the confession of sin, all of these are practices within the church that were going on in the 1500s. And what took place is that it demanded people's consciences. And what it did is that this institution bound people to an unbiblical view of the Christian faith and worship. And that is why you saw the reformers, like I said, Luther and Calvin, revived the biblical understanding of why God alone is to be worshipped, not to go through some man-made ideology or institution to be able to be saved. So when you understand the glory of God, you easily want to connect it to worship, which is a, I think is a good way, to, great way to understand it. And so before we move into a little more of the history books, I think it would be helpful after playing those games and hearing terms to help us to understand why God alone is to be glorified, we need to set the stage a little bit and to be able to define two terms that are important for us, or excuse me, one term, which is worship. In the Greek, there's two words that help us to understand the idea of worship. The first one, the Greek word is sebo, S-E-B-O. It means properly, to personally esteem, to hold in right respect. The other Greek word, which you may be more familiar with, is proskuskuno, which means reverence, prostrating, to fall down before someone superior. So that gives you an idea of what worship is all about, falling before someone who's superior, i.e. the Lord. So that's, that puts you in a, a sets up the stage in your mind and with your heart what right worship is, to fall down before someone superior, the Lord. I believe one of the best terms that helps us to define what worship is is through the Westminster Confession of Faith. Let me describe to you what, they, what the confession says. The acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself. You catch that? By himself. 
God is the one who establishes our worship. He is the one who sets the manner in how do we worship. Catch that. And so, limited by his own revealed will, that he may not be worshiped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in holy scripture. It's a great definition. So let me summarize for you. We worship the one true God by what the Bible says, what it describes and prescribes for us. That's what the Westminster Confession helps us to see. So that, those definitions set the stage for us, helps us to be able to see what true worship is, and defines it according to Scripture. Now, if you will, this is the fun part. Let's peel back the onion a little bit. Let's open up the history books, because I believe now we need to understand what was Luther seeing? What was he listening to? Because he understood more than anybody, I believe, what really was going on in the heart of the Catholic Church and reason why he penned the 95 Thesis, why he and John Calvin wrote, I mean, pages and thousands of pages to be able to exalt the God of the Bible and for the people of God to see the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's peel this back a little bit. In order to understand worship and why God alone is to be glorified, we need to understand some terms and, and what was going on in the Catholic Church at the time. And I think it would be helpful this evening to be able to understand the Catholic Mass, mass excuse me, in order for you to grasp really what was going on. So let me break down a couple things for you. So bear with me through this part of the history lesson. So the Catholic Church dates the Mass going back to when the Lord Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. So, of course, when you go back into the gospel accounts, you see that he broke bread with the disciples. Remember, he took the bread and the wine, the cup and the wine, and the bread, excuse me, and there is symbolized his, bread, his blood and his body to be broken and shed. So we, that's what they say is the first Mass that the Lord Jesus instituted. But the Mass that you hear about today, that if you were to go down the street into the holy name of Jesus Cathedral, and if you were going there and to attend the Mass, the, you may be familiar with its order and its liturgy, and that was established by Pope Pius V back in the 16th century. So the order, let me say the order of worship, it's more from order um, language that you may be familiar of, that you, were, that you would see in the Mass today was there established by Pope Pius, and he is the one that put into the practice, and it came from the Council of Trent. Now, We'll get to the council here in just a few mem in just a few minutes. But there, he is the one that put everything together. But in the Mass, or the Eucharist, everything in the Mass centers on the Lord's Supper. Everything centers on the Lord's Supper. So those true and false questions that I asked you help you to understand, again, the ins and outs of what was going on in the Catholic Church at the time and, FYI, continues to go on today. So, since the Eucharist, or the Lord's Supper, is at the center of that service, what happens in this order is before one takes the body and the blood of Jesus, and there, a repentance of sin must take place. Again, I'm glad you played that game with me, aren't you? So you'll be able to prepare for what, uh, the, what's going, I'm getting ready to read for you. So here's what's in order of the mats. There is a penitential, penitential act that takes place. After this, the priest calls upon the whole community, that is the baptized community in the Catholic Church, to take part of the penitential act, which, after a brief pause of silence, it does mean it does by means of a formula of general confession, the rite concludes with the priest absolution or forgiveness of sins. It's a fancy word to say that, which, however, lacks the efficacy of the sacrament of penance. Now, that's a nothing but a word salad there for you. Um, so let me just say it this way. The priest absolves, forgives sins of the entire community, but that doesn't necessarily negate the power of the person, the congregant, going to confession. Does that make sense? I know it's a little bit confusing, which is why we have the Reformation. But here's the re but just a little note for you, a little nugget. FYI, Christ forgives sin. Not the priest. Just, just remember that. So let's move a little bit deeper into the Mass. So then they move on to the bread and the wine. 
And the Council of Trent, again, I'll explain that in much more detail here in a minute, in 1551, instituted within the Mass with the, regarding the bread and the wine, they instituted this. By the consecration of the bread and the wine, there takes place a change of the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ our Lord and the whole substance of the wine into the substance of his blood. This change of the Holy Catholic Church has fittingly and properly called transubstantiation. Again, a word salad. Let me say it this way. Transubstantiation is to believe that the bread and the wine is the actual body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The actual body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you were to look at the Mass, the priest says a prayer, and the blessing over those elements then thus turn into the actual body and the blood of the Lord Jesus. Pretty scary if you think about it. Pretty scary if you think about it. The other element then is the rite of the supper, i.e. the implementation of it. And there again, it is made as a sacrifice. Pretty interesting. And the Catholic Catechism, again, paragraph 1366. I didn't want you to think I was plagiarizing. The Eucharist is thus a sacrifice that represents, makes present the sacrifice of the cross because it is memorial and because it applies its fruit, i.e., it is another sacrifice that is taking place in the service of the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus. So think about it. Every Sunday, every Lord's Day, another sacrifice is taking place over and over and over again. Doesn't make sense, does it? Because when we see the Lord institute, when he's there instituting the Last Supper, he did this in a form of remembrance, to remember exactly what he has done. I want you to take your Bible, and let's go to God's Word, and let's see exactly what God tells us. Like the Westminster Confession des describes worship to be. Go to Luke 22. We're going to do a little Bible flipping. Luke 22 and I want you to start reading with me in verse 17. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave to them, saying, This is my body which has been given for you. Do this, here it is, in remembrance of me in remembrance of me. So there the Lord Jesus, when he says remembrance, it is an account. The Greek word there is really bringing to mind, bringing to mind of the act of the Lord. I want you to turn over to 1 Corinthians. Go to your right. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I want you to see what Paul says as he describes the Lord's Supper there in chapter 11. And I'm going to start in verse 24. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drunk the cup and proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I want you to flip to one more verse. I want you to go to Hebrews with me. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. For since the law was but a shadow of the things, of the good things, to come instead of the true form of these realities. It can never by be of the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year. Make perfect those who draw near. So again, he's nullifying the sacrifice of the Old Testament. Now here, here he is turning the corner and going to the new covenant, or, or to the Lord Jesus Christ. Otherwise, they would have not ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. 
But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of the sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and in sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written for me in the scroll of the book. Let me stop there. Here, the writer of Hebrews is saying, Christ sacrifices once and for all. There does not need to be every time when the Lord's Supper is taking place another sacrifice to, re, to make present of the body and the blood of Christ every single time when the Lord's Supper is instituted. John Calvin, in his, li- in his letter to Cardinal James Sotoleto, when he was exiled from Geneva and Kenny was, and this cardinal was trying to bring people back to the Catholic Church. And there's a great dialogue between this, the cardinal and John Calvin here. And I would encourage you to, to look at this letter. It is, it's it's well, very well written. And John Calvin says this in regards to here um, refuting the claims of the Lord's Supper and taking place in the Catholic Church. He says this, The presence of Christ by which we are engrafted in we by no means exclude from the supper, nor shroud in darkness. Though we hold that there must be no local limitation, that the glorious body of Christ must not be degraded into earthly elements. There must be no fiction of transubstantiating the bread into Christ and afterwards worshiping it as Christ. I mean, it just knocks it right out, the baby with the bathwater right there. And all this sets the stage of what was going on in the heart of the Reformation. So again, I want you to see another point here that helps you understand this point even further, is going back to what I said about the Council of Trent. Because the Council of Trent gives you a little more understanding, because we're going to repeat this throughout this evening, because what happened when the Council of Trent took place between 1545 and 1563 is because what it did is these Catholic officials, bishops and cardinals came together to combat the Protestant Reformation. And here's what the implications that came out of the Council of Trent. Here's what it did. It affirmed the Apocrypha, which were Jewish books written within the intertestamental period of the Old and the New Testament. Books like the Book of Enoch, for example, that you may have read. And basically what you learn from this first point is that it denied the power and the authority of God's word. That's what it did. The second thing that it did is it affirmed justification was by faith plus works. And out of that, it also affirmed scripture plus tradition. So that's the other thing it did. And the third thing is that it denied Romans 3, i.e. that we are given or imputed the righteousness of Christ all through faith. The council called it infusion. Dr. Stephen Nichols describes it well. He says this, that means that Christ's righteousness is infused into us, and now we, empowered by Christ's righteousness, do good deeds. And in our doing of those good deeds, we bring our own righteousness before God. So, i.e., when we practice good deeds, it's all because it's been infused into us. And so our good deeds then are seen before God and we are made right before God. So it's faith and works. doesn't make sense, does it? So you follow what was going on here in the heart of Reformation. But here's the other thing that we need to understand. Not only was this taking place in the Mass, and this is going on within the worship services, what also was taking place with other false forms of worship. Another thing helps us to be able to understand why the Reformers ended on the Sola Day of Gloria, because what this was doing was also other things that were taking place and adding on to man-centered theology and man-centered forms of salvation and taking away from the glory of God was another element called indulgences indulgences. So what is an indulgence? According to Vatican II, which took place not too long ago, 1950s and 60s, an indulgence is a remission before God of the temporal punishment due to sins whose guilt has already been forgiven, which the faithful Christian who is duly disposed gains under certain defined conditions through the church's help. Again, you've heard this before, when the minister or the priest of redemption dispenses it under the authority of the treasury of satisfactions won by Christ and his saints. 
let me put it in redneck terminology for you. <laughs> Kenny Jones terminology. Because I'm just, listen, I'm just reading what the Catholic Church, okay? This is documents from them. So don't get mad at me. An indulgence is what you receive when the church lessens the penalty of sin. So wait a minute. Does it make sense? So since the sin has already been forgiven, what do they do? They deal only with punishments left after the sins have been forgiven. Kenny, there's another question mark. Let me explain it to you another way. They help you deal not only with the current consequences of your sin, but also looking in the future. They're also helping with purgatory, most importantly, getting you out of purgatory and any other punishment that can come from that intermediary time before you ascend into heaven. That's what it does. And the reason why I mention this to you is because indulgences in the time of the Reformation were rampant through the 16th century. A man named Johann Tetzel, or John Tetzel, began selling indulgences. And this is where Martin Luther first really came to scene because what he saw in this teaching within John Tetzel was just blasphemy. This is what helped him write the 95 Thesis was to combat what was taking place. And so what was happening during Luther's time was Tetzel was selling these indulgences, not only to forgive people of their sin, but also to get people out of purgatory. So the actions that were taking place were horrible and they were real. And the reality is, people not only believed in them, but they also bought indulgences to get their loved ones out of purgatory or to even get themselves out of the bondage of hell. Crazy to even think about. I mean, one author in this history of the Reformation said this, the occasion of John Tetzel and his preaching near Wittenberg was all commissioned by Pope Leo X, commissioning the sale of them in Albrecht of Mins, which is in Germany. Albrecht was already bishop of the diocese there, and he wanted to build a second see. Think about it like another headquarters of the Roman Catholic Church. But here's what happened. Pope Leo realized that there was a sizable loan that had taken place there from the bank, and the sale of indulgences was there, was commissioned to pay off the loan and help subsidize the rebuilding of St. Pillars of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. How about that? How about that? Pretty convenient. And so not only was it all about the money, but again, I want you to go back to the spiritual issue with this. They were also chains handcuffing people to get their loved ones out of purgatory and out of sinful behavior. And Tetzel, he propagated and sold it left and right. I love history because it also allows you to have a good you know, laugh every now and then. Because this is one of my favorite stories about Tetzel. Tetzel once sold an indulgence to a nobleman who was seeking protection against a future sin. Listen to this. You can't make this up. Subsequent to the transaction, the nobleman, with the aid of a few accomplices, set upon Tetzel and beat him. And having delivered the beating, the nobleman then informed Tetzel that the attack on him was the sin for which he had purchased the indulgence. You get that? Yeah. It just does not make sense. But that's exactly what was taking place. And there are so many other stories that we can read from the, just the heresy of what was, going out, what was going on Excuse me, regarding indulgences. Let me read you. Let me go into one more thing to set the stage about relics. Relics. What is a relic? A relic includes the physical remains of a saint or a person to which is considered holy but not officially canonized, as well as other objects that have been sanctified by being touched to its body. These relics are divided into two classes. First, real relics, which are the physical body parts, clothing, or instruments that connected to a martyr's imprisonment or torture, torture excuse me, or execution. The second class of these relics were those were the faithful ones who have touched the physical body parts or the grave of a saint. Relics like an indulgence were a hot topic and commodity during the heart of the Reformation. Then when you see the Catholic Church's teaching of 
the, of a relic. And you can, listen, I encourage you to Google this or, or to go into the Catholic Church and to see this. But Catholics derive the teaching of relics, actually what Grant mentioned this morning, through 2 Kings chapter 2, when Elijah took, picked up the cloak of Elijah. And as one example of that was a relic. So you remember when he took the cloak and just like Grant described and hit the river and it split? That was a relic in the eyes of the Catholic Church. And that's where they be able to say that's permitted the use of the use, uh, the, excuse me, permitted the use of a relic. But the reality is relics have been used and venerated for hundreds of years. Let me give you an example from Frederick the Wise who helped Luther and was right there in Wittenberg. He was a collector of relics, and I'm going to give credit uh, to Richard Smith out of his church history class. He gave me a lot of this information regarding to relics. I think Richard has some of these at his house. And so um, I would encourage you. Um, I think he mentioned that he has, as one example, the hay of the holy manger. The twig from Moses' burning bush. I think Richard has that. Um, and uh, one of my favorite St. Anne's thumb, who was Mary's mother. I love that. So since that was in the 16th century, are relics used today? Yes, they are. Just recently, Pope Francis, as he was in Naples, listen what happened. The patron of Naples, St. Janarius, had they had a vial of dried blood from the 4th century, and guess what? It liquefied. And there the blessing took place. A phenomenon was there. And there at that mass on the, on the saints of the feast day there on December 16th. And there that vial of blood, just as Pope Pius himself used, was used as a blessing upon Pope Francis. Crazy. And when you think about Mary, excuse me, relics, you have to naturally go into Mary. Because it's a common question that you find yourselves when you think about the Catholic Church with the idea of Mariology. And really, if you look at this idea of Mariology, here's the thing. Here's the four dogmas, the four pillars that the Roman Catholics believe in regards to Mary, the mother of Jesus. First of all, they color the Mary, the mother of God, which affirmed that she was the actual mother of the Lord Jesus or, or God incarnate. The second thing is they believe that her, at her conception, she was sinless. And through that, she had a perpetual virginity, meaning that she remained a virgin throughout their, her pregnancy, and she was taken up into heaven. Now, you may say, well, Kenny, those aren't bad things, but here's what's derived out of them. The Catholic Encyclopedia says that in Mary, she is the fiat of faith, the pillar of faith. She receives salvation for us all, and Mary is a mediator and that is to be understood on the lever of solidarity of all mankind, which is the needed of redemption. The function of Mary in salvation determines her relation to the church. Mary is the mother of the church, and she is effectively concerned for the salvation of each individual person. What a good mother. When Catholics, and this is what was going on in the time of Luther, they realized one thing that was going on with Mariology, the worship of Mary and the praise of Mary. Here's what one author says. Mary participates in the redemption with Jesus Christ. She is, as one term defines it, as a co-redemptrix, meaning she is used for salvation. See, she is a mediator between us and the Lord Jesus, which contradicts 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. But there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus is our mediator, just like Grant talked about this morning in John 14. There is no mediator between man and Jesus. It's Jesus himself that dwells in believers, and thus no mediator is inquired before us and the Lord. We don't need Mary. And there's so much more that we can just say about Mary. Again, I want to thank uh, the church history class. She is full of grace. She is queen over all things. But here are the two that stand out to me. She sits on the right hand of the majesty on high, which is commissioned again by Pope Pius X. And she crushed the poisonous head 
of the most cruel serpent and brought salvation to the world. Last time I read Roman, excuse me, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, I believe the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who did that. But all this, all of this, again, thank you for letting me go through that, some of that history there. All of this points to man-centered and an unbiblical viewpoint of what was going on in the Catholic Church, what they were worshiping, and they will continue to worship even to this day. The reality is, worship was turned upside down. It was centered on man. It was centered on man-centered tradition, and the Reformers knew this. And in God's grace and providence, you see men like Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and Wycliffe and others. And in in God's providence, what they did more than anything is they revived the power and the inspiration and brought back the truth and the inspiration of God's Word, that all God's words are breathed by God, and they are and they are profitable for teaching, and they are alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. That's what the Reformers brought back to us. And when you open up Scriptures, you see the God of the Bible and how He alone saves, that He is the author and the initiator of our salvation. And what it does, when you look at the Scripture alone, when you look at Scripture, excuse me, you see that man and tradition are taken out of it which robs the Catholic Church of any equation or any way to try to, in their eyes, to save man from their sins. And this is what the Reformers taught. They revived what the Bible says about the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is how you understand why Solidea Glory is so important to the Reformation. Because you have to, if you're going to understand the truth, you have to understand it in the context of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's see what the Reformers revived. Let's go to the Bible. Take in your Bible and go to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. By the way, I'm going to be selling indulgences too for the price of one. Later tonight. So if you have a sin, you can commit it now and we'll figure out a way. It's a joke. Just a joke. One of my favorite relic stories, I didn't mention this, but I'm going to mention it anyway now, is um, there was a relic. I told this, I was telling this to somebody earlier. Um, someone supposedly had the toe, the toe, toes or toe, of Joseph. You know what I mean, Joseph in Genesis? Remember when he died, he asked, bring my bones from Egypt and take them to Israel when you go back to the promised land. Supposedly someone had his toes. And there's a story there, probably a myth more than anything, that if you touch the toes, it would bless you to be able to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And it would bless your message even more because Joseph toes traveled from Israel to Egypt. Therefore, your message would be blessed. And as long as you mentioned that you touched the toes of Joseph, it was a guarantee that whoever you were preaching to would come to faith in Jesus Christ, all because of the toes of Joseph. Now, I wear a size nine and a half, so, um, you know, if you want to touch my feet later or anything like that, um, you know, or buy a pair of shoes for me, um, I'll be happy to bless your ministry. Um, But anyway, so let's go back to the Bible. So, Paul... In Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18, all the way through chapter 3, he makes a clear argument that God's wrath is being revealed upon sin. There is not a man, woman, or child, Jew or Gentile, that is perfect. No one has ever kept every single iota of the law. No one is made right before God based upon their own merit or good works. And Paul clearly outlines that in the first three chapters there in Romans. And a phrase that Paul, that we can use to understand what he's talking about, is the term of total depravity. And I would encourage you to go back and listen to Jim Briggs' message a couple of weeks ago because he clearly laid out for us, as I call it, he did a great Oprah Winfrey message that you're a sinner and you're a sinner and you're a sinner instead of giving out cars. So he just, he, he just really just helped us to be able to understand that no one is righteous before God, not no one, as he's quoting there in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. But here is where the light of the Reformation took pl- take place because here's what the Reformers revived out of Romans chapter 3. Look with me starting in verse 21, and I'm going to read in verse 21 and 23. 
But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For all who believe. Paul here is taking us back in his argument, back to the Old Testament, and again defending his argument with Scripture and helping us to see that the, that the power of the gospel, even the Old Testament prophets, foretold of the coming Messiah. But in order for you to understand the heart of the Reformation, in order for us to be made right before God, you need to understand what the term righteousness means. Dekatasune is the Greek term for it. It means justice or justness, which means that the righteousness of God, he is the source and the author. It's the divine righteousness. It's the approval of God. Think about it as a judicial term a judicial approval, a divine approval before God. But the definition helps us to see a, clear, a major point. In order to have the approval of God, God has to be the author of the approval process, which means God has to deal with God's wrath. How? But now what Paul's talking about is all through the power of the new covenant, all through Jesus Christ, not through a priest, not through the sacrament of penance, not through an indulgence or a relic. It's all through Christ. So when Paul says, but now, he is now ushering that Jesus has come. The old covenant has to pass away, and the new covenant is here, all through the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul, if you were to go back into further into his text, even into 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he quotes Isaiah chapter 49, verse 8, when he says, in a favorable time, I have listened to you, and the day of salvation, I have helped you. Paul, again, connecting from Romans 3 to 2 Corinthians, even back to Isaiah, is saying, now Jesus has come. The day of salvation has come now. And so what he does here is breaking down what the Old Testament is saying, breaking down that, is not, that the righteousness of God is not coming through the Old Covenant or the Mosaic Covenant. It's all coming through Christ. Because remember what Christ came to do, as he says in Matthew five seventeen, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. But to fulfill them. So what Paul's doing here, Romans 3, he's bringing back Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah and all of them knew, all of them knew that the suffering servant is going to come and he is the one who's going to give us a heart of flesh. And verse 21 and 22 is so important for us to understand because Paul says in the Old Testament that Jesus is coming and he's now here declaring that we can be made right all before God now all through Christ. And how is this going to happen? Look with me in that key word, through faith. This is the mechanism. Sola fide. This is the mechanism that makes us right before God. It is belief, trust, confidence. Faith is the, per the persuasion to trust in Christ. And there's the key word there. It is in Christ. That preposition signifies so much because in Christ alone, faith alone, faith in him, that the righteousness of God is received. When you look at Romans 3, you have to naturally flip over one page to Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 17, where Paul again echoes the heart of the God, I mean, just proclaims the heart of the gospel and, she, and helps to see how we come, can come to faith. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and to also the Greek. For in it, there it is, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. You can turn back with me over to Romans chapter 3. Because when you see that preposition there in, we need to understand what Paul is not saying as well. We need to look at it in the negative. Paul's not saying because we have faith, meaning general faith, that anything that we believe in saves. No, he is anchoring in Christ. Christ is the only way to be made righteous. Nor is he saying that righteousness comes through the law. Or let's go back to the Reformation, to what the Catholic Church was propagating and selling out. It doesn't come through tradition or man-centered ways. It doesn't come through a priest. Third, our faith in Christ is outside of us. It's outside of us, meaning Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift from God. Rome teaches 
that faith comes through baptism. That's how it receives. That's what grants spiritual life. But we know that faith comes by an act of God, by the power of the gospel of God. It's the effectual calling of God that when the power of the gospel is heard and when you hear it, the Holy Spirit works in you and reform, it changes your heart, reforms your heart, regenerates your heart, and then gives you the power to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the gift. This is the gift, and this is what is proclaimed over and over and over again in Scripture. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Paul, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, says this, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Ladies and gentlemen, just here in Romans 3 alone breaks down what the reformers were, were trying to preach and teach and labor in for all those years. They wanted the people of God to see that the institution of the Catholic Church is not the means and the way to be saved. What they wanted to exalt is the power of the gospel of God. And that is why God is to be glorified. To God alone be glory. There's no good deed, no self-sacrificial method that can get you into heaven. You don't need to go to the priest and do the sacrament of penance. You don't need to even go back into time and to try to even purchase an indulgence or to even to receive an indulgence. No, it is through the gospel that we have life. It is through the gospel that we are able to confess our sins and know that he is just and faithful to forgive. Calvin, again, writing to the cardinal, says this about the righteousness of God. And this is really the heart of his letter here. He says this. This is a long quote, so bear with me. First, we must bid a man by beginning to examine himself. And this is not superficial or perfunctory manner, but it is to shift his conscience before the tribunal of God. And when he is succinctly convicted of his iniquity, to reflect upon the strictness of the sentence pronounced upon all sinners, thus confounded and amazed at his misery, he is prostrated and humbled before God. And casting away all self-confidence, he groans as if to final perdition. Then we show that only the haven of safety and the mercy of God is manifested in Christ in whom every part of our salvation is complete, as all mankind are in the sight of God. Lost sinners, we hold that Christ is their only righteousness, since by his obedience he has wiped off our transgressions, by his sacrifice appeased the divine anger by his blood, washed away our stains by the cross, bore our curse, and by his death made satisfaction for us. We maintain that in this way man is reconciled in Christ to God the Father by no merit of his own, by no value of his works, by no gratuitous mercy. When we embrace Christ by faith and come, as it were, into communion with him, this we term, after the manner of Scripture, the righteousness of faith. Isn't that beautiful? That's just a clear picture of the gospel. And that is why we give God the glory. It is all through Christ. All through Christ. I want you to, in our time of closing, flip over to one more passage with me. Romans 5. Romans 5, just briefly. Grant went through these a couple of weeks ago on Thanksgiving. But I want you to see something here. And for you to understand again, to God alone be the glory. Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained access by faith into this grace, and to which we stand and to which we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Let me read that again in verse 2. Through him, 
we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, in which we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Let me just get real with you just for a second. When you realize this, that we share and are granted the glory of God, that is a magnificent truth to be able to understand and to comprehend. That because of our justification, we receive and share in the glory of God. The word glory, the Old Testament is kabod, means heaviness or weightiness. When we speak of the glory of God, we speak of God being heavy. There's a seriousness, seriousness excuse me, behind it. When we understand the glory of God, you have to go back even to t- texts like Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, where God to, to, says that he is the great I am, which means that he is to be. He is self, self-sufficient and self-existent. He doesn't need any man or object on the face of the earth to be able to exist in this world. He has always existed. Matthew Henry, I love Matthew Henry's quote, commentating on Exodus 3. He says, It's the greatest and the best man in the world must say, By the grace of God, I am what I am. But God says, Absolutely. And is more than any creature, man, or angel can say, I am that I am. Let me describe God to you. As the Westminster Confession says in chapter 2, God hath all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself and is alone and into himself all sufficient, not standing in any need of creatures which he has made. This is the God to whom we serve. And this is the God of the Bible. And this is the confidence that, that we can have, the hope that we have, that we get to share and are granted the glory of God. Why? All because of Christ. All because of Christ. Paul writes in Romans 8, for from him, for those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that we might be the firstborn among the many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Even though we still await glorification when we get to heaven, never forget that one day we will be in perfection with him and we will be glorified all because of the power and the work in the Lord Jesus Christ. Never forget that. Tom Schreiner says this, what has been lost through Adam is being restored in Christ. Even though we are kicked out of the garden in Genesis chapter 3, I mean, wanting before God, and Adam lost the glory of God, here again, all because of our faith in Christ, God's glory will be restored. The hope of glory. And so tonight, I want to conclude with this. The reason why the reformers ended with Solidea Gloria is because they wanted to highlight the power of the gospel of God. Just as Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. If you're going to understand why God is alone to be gloried, you have to understand who he is and what he has done. And that is why God is to be glorified. Not an institution like the Catholic Church, not into a priest, not into a sacrament, not into a time of confession, to go and to be forgiven. No, we look to our mediator, our redeemer, our Messiah in Christ alone. And that is why, that is why God is is to be glorified. I want to end with this. You know, a lot of you know I love music. I love um, getting out of the opportunity to leave from time to time and with Jake, and um, to be able to, um, I love, maybe some of you do, I love classical music. I love reading about um, great composers of the day. And one of my favorite is Johann Sebastian Bach. And if you know anything about Bach, not only um, was he a, I mean, just God gave him a gift to write music, um, but he was a strong believer, a very strong believer. And if you know much about Bach, on the end of his Scores. He wrote three different things. One, he would write JJ, which is Yehu Juva, help me Jesus. Or he would write the initials INJ, in nomine Yeshu, which is the name of Jesus. But most of the time, he inscribed in all of his competitions SDG, 
sola Deo Gloria. To God alone, the glory. So whether we eat or we drink, whatever we do, we do all for the glory of God. Whether writing music, serving in the church, being a mother, a father, a friend, or an employee, remember what you have been purchased from, from the wrath of God, and to him alone be the glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth that we have heard tonight. And Father, I thank you for men of the great reformation that revived in us and revived for us, excuse me, the truth of Scripture. And for us to see, Lord, you just exalt the God of the Bible. And so, Father, I pray that we would not, that we would not cease to give you glory in everything that we do. Father, we love you, and we pray these things in the good name of Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.